You're listening to episode 56 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Rudy Ray Moore is far from the happiest man on the planet. He works a dead-end job in a record store, his musical career is going nowhere, and his stand-up routines barely raise a chuckle. But one fateful day, he meets a man who tells a story in rhyme that's crude, rude, and makes everyone laugh. Inspired by this material, Moore creates an entire comic persona with the hopes of bringing his own brand of it to the masses. And thus, one of the most outrageous characters of all time, Dolomite, is born. But Moore is not content with just a lucrative record deal and flourishing stand-up career, he wants his name up on the big screen too. Marking one of the greatest cinematic comebacks in recent memory, Dolomite Is My Name serves as a perfect vehicle for Eddie Murphy's brash, in-your-face style of comedy. And the film itself serves as a testament to the power of ambition and self-belief, and we're going to break it down for you today. Why? Because in film we trust is our name and deep diving motherfuckers is our game. Now, it might be a weird way to start a podcast, but I think it's apropos for this episode. Let's do a motherfucker count. Now, this film is appropriately, and uses many times, the term motherfucker. So, I think I've used it twice already. The term motherfucker? Shit! Okay, that's three times. That's three times a motherfucker. Wait, that's four times. Where do we stop? Where do we stop? It's quite infectious, isn't it? I know. How many times can you say it? You could say, like, well, if you're Eddie Murphy, you can kind of make a career. Or Samuel Jackson, you basically made a career using the term motherfucker. So, so we're putting it to our audience, to the listeners, throughout this entire episode. Let's, uh, let us know, when you get to the end of this, on Twitter, on Instagram, or, you know, Zuckerberg's threads, <laughs> <laughs> what exactly, how many times we say the term motherfucker. How many is that, Wayne? I'm, I'm losing count now. Uh, we're getting close to ten now. If you include is, that five, is that five? Um, I think it's more than five, actually. Do you know what? Yes. I'm going to make it even harder. Motherfucker, 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 motherfucker. <laughs> okay, how many times? I don't know how many times that is. Okay. And, it, there it, one, and there was one in the synopsis as well, so it really, really adds it's up. up to the, it's up to the audience now. It's one It's one of those words I've heard people say, when you hear terms like fuck or motherfucker, when it's used enough times, it becomes like the word T. It becomes a classic part of your lexicon, so it doesn't even really register the same. It becomes like a, it's a classic term of endearment for a friend of yours, because you can call someone you don't like a motherfucker, and a friend of <laughs> yours a motherfucker as well it's a very pliable term would you say everybody's a motherfucker in, 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 a, in, in a sense yeah it's like the term son of a bitch it's one of, of those bitch. terms that just gets used like banded around so much and that was used in a song quite popularly son of a bitch and i can't remember who done it now like about a decade ago and son of a bitch was quite the it was quite a lyric when it was quite a lyric and it was effective and i think motherfuckers the same now mm. i i realize this and i'm saying this word to make it more difficult in our audience to keep account but i'm sure there are some people there whether they've got ocd whether they have got <laughs> some other you know obsession <laughs> that is going to drive them mad and i would like to know at the end of this at the end of this episode how many times they actually say motherfucker and there will be a prize for that but why are we saying this black exploitation films way mm-hmm. growing up we, we've discussed the genre fan i am the exploitation fan i am and these films come to me relatively early and it came specifically specifically and people are going to be thinking no liam you, you, you're just saying this in hindsight but no one of my first black exploitation films was Melvin Van Peebles' 1971 film, Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song. Now, there is many A's and S's in that title. I was going to say, how many A's and S's are in that title, you think? As many as motherfuckers we say in this episode. <laughs> so far. But I really like that film. Now, look, I'm a devotee, and this is a slightly left of centre here, a John Cassavetes fan. But Melvin Van Peebles' Sweet Sweet Box film is very cinema verity, very handheld, it's very propulsive. I really dig that film. Digged is appropriate for this I was going to say, dig is a good word to use for that, yeah. Now, I know this was your first time delving into Sweet Sweet Box. It was, yeah. I know you weren't necessarily the biggest fan, which, which you know, it, it hurt me to the cockles. <laughs> and, I, and, I did say, and I did say cockles there. Bloody hell, man. In case anybody's, like, wondering. But I'm going to say first, right, okay, why did I like Sweet Sweet Box 
it had that cinema verite feel. It had that John Cassavetes film feel. It had it put you in the action. It was revolutionary for the time. It had everything I wanted to see when I was in my formative years of why this was an important film, why this felt separate from Hollywood, and why it would garner the esteem it went on to garner. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking you, okay, first time viewing, just today, several days ago, why did you not get into it? I'm curious. The reasons I didn't get into it, firstly... I was not, I'll be honest, I was not a big fan of the aesthetic or the sound. It was, look, it's a very cheap movie. Melvin Van Peebles, he did basically everything. Right. He kind of went full Edward. He funded it himself. I believe did not contract, actually contract gonorrhea making One the of the actors did. Yeah. I think there was a claim at one point during the making of Sweet Sweet Backs that the actor, the main actor, did contract some venereal disease. But I just didn't enjoy overall as a kind of viewing experience because it looked so bad and because it sounded so bad. After a while, it kind of felt like a bad acid trip and I was very unable to kind of keep up with what was going on. I felt that Badass looked very kind of apathetic in a lot of scenes. I don't know if he was meant to, maybe that was kind of the point, but it got to a time where I was like, I'm not following this and I'm not really that bothered about following it. Does that kind of make sense? Wayne. Yes. Fuck you. <laughs> okay. Motherfuck you. Motherfuck you. <laughs> no, I I really liked Sweet Sweet Bark's Badass song. For them qualities, you say the aesthetic mm. may not be up to par. It may not look like a traditional Hollywood film, but I like that. It is outsider art, mm. and I, I appreciate that so much. And I, That's why I likened it to the works of John Cassavetes, where everything is at stake. When Melvin Van Peebles made this film, you had assumed he would mortgage his house to make this film and i think that is what matters it is the context of the time it is made in it's not too dissimilar to an easy rider it's got lens flare <laughs> it's visually imperfect but it mattered at the time and place it was made and i completely see that with sweet sweetback's badass song melvin fab Van Peebles was capturing the zeitgeist at the moment because it was a rev- it was a revolutionary moment. Let's think the civil rights movement. We had the Black Panthers movement. We had Ma- Muhammad Ali changing his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. The times were changing, as Bob Dylan said, Wayne. And I think that is what is important. It looked aesthetically different to old Hollywood, and that is the point. We are starting a new avant-garde, and I think that is important. And I mentioned the Black Panthers a moment ago, and when Huey P. Newton of the Black Panther, saw this film, he said it was the first revolutionary black film to be put on celluloid. And I believe that it's important you bring up the uh, the Black Power movement, the Black Panthers, because yeah. you can't really separate black exploitation from the movements at the time. Because uh, a lady called Afeni Shakur, who was actually Tupac Shakur's mother, yes, she said that films like this, films like Sweetback, other black exploitation films, were influenced by civil rights movement yeah. and the Black Power yeah. movement. And there's an interesting circularity there because these films were influenced by this movement, and in creating these films, now you could see these black actors, these black performers on screen in lead roles yep. as heroes yep. because you think through like 50s and 60s what did black actors usually play they were the maids they were the servants in the household or the they were slaves the slaves right. they were the lackeys think of the film Mandingo from 75 yep. slave exploitation came along yep, yep. another thing is a lot of these films were actually made by white directors. Now, we've talked about male gaze before, like seeing the female experience through the male eye. But here, for lack of a better term, it's kind of like the white gaze. It's portraying black life through a white lens. And I know not everybody, not all the members of like the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Panther Movement, were on board with this film. In fact, the term black exploitation was a term used to kind of ridicule it because uh, Junius Griffin who was of the NAACP, right. he just said this genre just perpetuates black stereotypes because you look at the films, what do they involve? Pimps, prostitutes, drugs, ghettos, things like this. And it, he said it was very demeaning to them. He says there was actually a group form called Coalition Against Black Exploitation. That was a real thing. Who People say that actually contributed to the genre's decline in the late 70s. So not everybody was on board with this. So would you say the sense these guys, these detractors, are the black Mary Whitehouses? <laughs> is this Motherfucking what Mary Whitehouse. Are we on about her again? How did she come out of black She bleeds into every single one of But I know, things. right. They, 
the argument is that this propagates the notion of the blackmail, especially blackmail, as the criminal, the hypersexed, and the violence. Yes. Which I don't necessarily agree with. As you said, prior to this, right, we've got the maid, we've got the slave, we've got black character as a cameo appearance, as a side character, and they're there to facilitate maybe the burgeoning acceptance of a white person. But this, this genre specifically... It placed a black guy, and I think that is quite important. We say black men, because obviously this is the, the revolutionary 60s, and in hindsight, even though that was a period of revolution, it was very much in the male gaze. Mm -hmm. I know we had Palm Greer and Coffee, we had Palm Greer and Foxy Brown, but for the most part, it was you know Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, or Richard Roundtree. So it was very much a, a masculine genre, for the most part, where generalizing here for sentiment but it did give the black community an empowerment so to speak it made them leads in their own stories and we've got to remember shaft probably to this day maybe the biggest black exploitation film still around was directed by gordon parks mm -hmm. who was an extremely famous photographer of the time he done these street photography style photographs will explore the black community expressed you know the outcast community the marginalized and i think that's it becomes important because if we look at shaft if we're looking at shaft or melvin van peebles of sweet sweet box now melvin van peebles he was he lived in france for a while he was an investigative reporter in france so we're getting a good pedigree so we've got melvin van peebles for sweet sweet box gordon parks for shaft now who scored shaft well, Isaac Hayes scored Shaft, one of the biggest performers of that era. And not only is he one of the biggest performers of that era, he also composed one of the best soundtracks of that era because the Shaft soundtrack is fucking on point. Even if you don't know the Shaft movie, everyone knows that theme song. It's so instantly iconic. As soon as you hear it, you can imagine the guy walking down the street. And you can talk about how these films had stereotypical portrayals, but two things. First of all, a lot of time it was portraying a kind of reality. You did have these ghettos, you did have pimps, prostitutes, drugs, etc., etc. Also, if nothing else, it gave these performers avenues into the film world because these weren't just viewed by black audiences. These actually became very profitable businesses and obviously Savvy Studios thought we can market this to a mass audience. So you're getting all of these people on screen you wouldn't have seen before, like your Pam Greer's. Because I watched Coffee in preparation for this podcast. Yep. She's a very liberated woman she's yep. a very independent woman she's the hero of the story she gets knocked around but she comes back and she fights she's fighting blacks and whites that's the thing it's not just one against the other coffee foxy brown that's a middle 70s mm. we're talking about liberated women but not only is it a liberated woman in the united states it's a liberated black woman in the united states which is even more important if you're thinking of marginalized groups then on top of that an extra marginalized group but within that is palm greer she's playing coffee she is kicking ass hmm. she's taking names and she does that in coffee foxy brown now what is interesting and i think for a modern audience if we are to appropriate now Qu quentin tarantino everybody is familiar with i think everybody listening to this podcast is familiar with quentin tarantino of course coffee directed by jack hill is probably, in Tarantino's words, his favourite black exploitation film. Unsurprising, also because if you think Pam Greer after the uh, after the decline of black exploitation, she would have something of a career slump. She came back. Who helped facilitate her comeback? Tarantino when he made Jackie Brown, which was based on uh, Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. Elmore Leonard. I'm, I'm a big fan of. And interesting to note, and this is how Tarantino weaved his black exploitation fandom into this in Elmore Leonard's novel. Rum Punch, the character that Palm Greer plays is not a black woman. Mm -hmm. It's not black centered. It's not a black exploitation like. Tarantino adapted that through his love of the black exploitation genre. He cast Palm Greer because he was obviously a huge fan of coffee, for example. And he effectively turned Jackie Brown, his film, an adaptation of Elmer Leonard's Rum Punch, into a black exploitation film. Mm. Now, let, let's digress a moment. I think, and I don't know if I'm in the minority or the majority here, but I would say Jackie Brown is probably one of Tarantino's top three films. I think it is. I think it's grossly underrated, Jackie Brown. For people who hate Tarantino films and be and think he became formulaic, think he became self-reverential, 
for example, Mark Kermode. Mark Kermode's not a huge Tarantino fan. He's actually quite a Tarantino detractor. But he thinks Jackie Brown is Tarantino's best film he's ever made. It's interesting, that blending of genres. It very much plays pays homage to the black exploitation, not just through its plot, but through its music as yep. well. A lot of the music you'd hear in Jackie Brown, I love the music in that film. Absolutely. It's the kind of film you would have heard in other black exploitation films. In fact, the one of the moments at the end of the film, they sing across 110th Street. Bobby no, Womack. Yeah, another song I absolutely love. And of course, that's the name of another, not black exploitation film, but heavily influenced. Now, should we discuss that? 100 across 110th Street. Because I think the star of that film is Anthony Quinn. Yes. So we're in territory where we're like, okay, this is taking influence from black exploitation. It's maybe exploiting black exploitation on top of that, <laughs> which is similar to the James Bond film. Is it To Live and Let Die? Live and Let Die, yeah. Right. That's also delving into black exploitation and a little kung fu, the kind of topics of the 70s. So across across 110th Street, I, I'm going to say I like that film. That's a great film, yeah. Bobby Womack's song, Across 110th Street, is probably one of my favourite songs of that era for a soundtrack. I know you've recently watched that. Mm -hmm. What did you think? I really enjoyed it as well. Incidentally, yeah. Across 110th Street and Live and Let Die both feature Yafet Koto, yeah. which I think was a nice little touch. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed 110th Street. I liked how it was such an empathetic film, how it empathised with its victims, and it had a great back and forth between Anthony Quinn and Yafet Koto. did remind me of In the Heat of the Night, a similar kind of thing. We have this Silly black... Pot, yeah. yeah, we yeah. have this black cop who's very much talked down to. There's great little scenes where somebody will address Anthony Quinn's character but completely ignore Yafet Koto. Now, there is a critic, and I can't remember the critic at this moment, who's seen 110th Street and said it's essentially, this was a detractor of the film, it was an essentially an exercise in genocide. There's not nuance. Everybody wants to kill each other. There's no racial point. There's nothing. It's just genocide. I'm not sure if I agree with that. I do like the film. I don't, I don't agree with that at all because what it does is it demonstrates the kind of power dynamics in the city because you have the kind of mafia guy, the Italian-American, because it's not just whites, blacks, it's blacks, Italians, and Italian-Americans as well because you have these gangsters who are trying to hold on to the business. You've got kind of an upstart guy. So it does demonstrate an interesting power dynamic. The whole killings, you know, killing people off, yep. that's just part of the gangster life. These people stole from us. These people are a threat to us. We need to have these people removed. It's not senseless violence by any means. Which I I think touches on an American point. I think in American culture, there has been historically, historically, let's say, a tension between the black community and the Italian community. Mm -hmm. uh, Spike Lee in Do the Right Thing expressed this in his film also. So, you know, we're dealing in very important matters. But let, we mentioned Coffee, we mentioned Foxy Brown. Now, who made them films? Jack Hill. Yeah. Now, Jack Hill was a white middle class guy who almost had no right to be making black exploitation <laughs> films as good as he did. Mm. But he arguably made the best black exploitation films, arguably. Mm -hmm. Now, in Jack Hill's filmography, he also made Switchblade Sisters and Spider Baby. Now, <laughs> they are two hugely, hugely, I'm going to say it once more for effect, Wade, hugely influential films because Spider Baby kick-started and played into this horror trope which, you know, Rob Zombie would almost pick up, I'd say. And Switchblade Sisters, and we mentioned Tarantino before, Switchblade Sisters is Tarantino's, or one of his favourite screenplays he has ever read. It is this girl gang film. It is terrific. Jack Hill also made The Swing and Cheerleaders. So Jack Hill, from day one, day one, he's dipped his toes in up pretty much, pretty much every exploitation film genre you could imagine. I mean, I know nowadays, if you were saying we're having this film with a mostly black cast being written and directed by a white man, folk would say, that's not fair, you should have a black person doing this. But you have to remember, back at the time, there wasn't as many yep. positions like that. But you have to have to, also have to remember, you had a lot of white people, white actors like Charlton Heston and Marlon Brando, who were prominent members of the civil rights movement. Right. So these people were really giving these marginalised people a leg up exactly. into the community. And you mentioned Do the Right Thing before. Yep. You could also talk about Boys in the Hood, which in a way you could look at kind of latter-day black exploitation films. Right, because we mentioned Melvin Van Peebles of of Sweet Sweetback's badass song, well, his son Mario Van Peebles would direct the film New Jack City in mm -hmm. the 1990s, which is a really good film. It is, it's got the flair of an Abel Ferrara's The King of New York, for example. So, look, 
you could make the argument, does the hip-hop, especially the gangster rap genre, exist without black exploitation? I don't know, because this film specifically, Rudy Ray Moore, mm. his patter, his the way of speech, does a Snoop Dogg, does a Dr. Dre, does an Ice-T, do they exist without a Rudy Ray Moore? I'm not certain. Well, what was one of the nicknames Rudy Ray Moore had? He was referred to as the godfather of rap. <laughs> kind of how later in right. life these films were kind of rediscovered. And people thought, oh, all these artists that are doing this kind of thing nowadays, Rudy Ray Moore was doing this decades ago. But can I make a point? Rudy Ray Moore, we've got all these filmmakers, but we have to put the counter-argument. We have to put that in. Now, this was a time, especially when these films were making, being made, of increased, especially increased, black conscientious movement. We had the Black Panthers, we had the Civil Rights, we had all them lot, right? We have athletes, Muhammad Ali, musicians like Gil Scott Heron, Marvin Gaye, you know. We had all these guys within the black community and there was this view that the black exploitation film was exploiting the black experience and as we said you know the criminal the hypersex the violent but i i i want to point i want to put this into our episode wayne i don't think anybody is mistaken by thinking we are scottish i think we're quite clearly <laughs> scottish it's pretty clear by now yeah but gil scott heron one of the greatest musicians of the 1970s he made the famous song the revolution will not be televised well here's a little fact for or, you know, our international fans, our American fans, maybe it draws into our Scottish fans, for example. Now, Gil Scott Heron, that great musician, the revolution will not be televised. His father, Gil Heron, was the first, was the first black footballer to play for the Scottish team, Selig Football Club. I think I do actually remember reading a story about that. It's really sad now when you look back and you think just how just how recently that was, that it wasn't happening beforehand. But like you say, you have to get kind of a leg up and you talk about black identity at this right. point where they realised, what does it mean to be black in this kind of society? Right. And I think a lot of these black exploitation films were likely a reaction to this. They didn't like how they were being portrayed. Like, look, we're going to portray it our way. Maybe it was dishonest, maybe it was over-exaggerated. But the point is, black exploitation was a very, very popular genre and it got so many of these people into the film business who otherwise wouldn't have had a voice at all. And if you think we've got some of the highlights of that era, we've got Gordon Parks, we've got Melvin Van Peebles, we've got Curtis Mayfield, who done the soundtrack to Superfly, we've got James Brown, who done the soundtrack to Black Caesar, <laughs> which I actually own on vinyl, Wayne. Really? I'm not bragging there. I do have James Brown's Black Caesar on vinyl. I do it's love a, it's a, a great. I love a James Brown song. I love James Brown. He's fantastic. The Sex Machine himself, motherfucker. Motherfucker. It's been a while since we've had one of them slip another one in. I hope you're keeping uh, count at home, everybody. Keep a count. Because <laughs> there's many more to come. <laughs> yes. But, but how does this black exploitation, how does this work into the film we're talking about today? Dolomite is my name. We've already talked about Rudy Ray Moore. Right. How he was one of the, not to say the founders of the movement, but he really no, capitalized no. early on. No, we're talking like people like your Melvin Van Peebles. Those were the people that really helped to kick it off at the beginning of the 70s. Now, when this is an interesting point. When Rudy Ray Moore was making Dolomite, there was this discussion. Okay, is, is he just, is he, is he carrying the coattails of this <laughs> genre? Because there was a discussion. Is he being serious? Is he spoofing us? Is he making something what he thinks is genuine, but it's so bad it's good type way? Eddie Murphy, the star of this film. Mm. Well, his argument on this is whether if Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite is being serious or not. Well, Murphy says, look, it is clearly satire. He says, absolutely, it's satire. I've had this debate with comedians. They'll be like, oh, no, this is funny because he's trying to be serious and it's bad. And I say, no, this motherfucker's a comedian. There's no way he's thinking this is serious. There's no way you could see him in a fight scene and go, he's serious. He's a comedian parodying Shaft and slaughtering Big Ripoff and all that stuff. So Eddie Murphy, the star of this film, and let's not just say, he is not just the star of this film. He is the producer of this film. He is the genesis of this film. He is the one who propagated it from going to nothing to being what it is today. And even he, as a Rudy Ray Moore super fan, he is a super fan, he even sees it as a satire on the genre itself. I suppose you could say that, yeah. And it wasn't just a great comeback film, because this was a great comeback, Freddie Murphy. He's had a lot of kind of ups and downs in his career. He was big at the beginning with like another 40, uh, 48 hours, and he did Beverly Hill Corp, Trading Places. He was 
effortlessly good in those films. But he kind of had some peaks and troughs. But it was around 2003 he had the idea for this film. So it wasn't always just pitched as a comeback film. He'd been wanting to do this for years. Because like you say, he was a Rudy Ray Moore yep. super fan. He loved the whole Dolomite thing. He actually met with Rudy Ray Moore, who told him stories of his life, which they integrated yeah, yeah. into the story. Right, I've got a quick question. You know I like putting you on the spot, Wayne. Uh, yes, you do. Now, okay, okay. Beverly Hills Cop, Trading Places, Coming to America. What's your favourite? Five, four. Beverly Hills Cop. Really? That would be my really? favourite. That or Trading Places. I think so. See, I recently got round to what rewatching Coming to America for a long, long time. I was not... It didn't It didn't land the same as I can remember. See, we often, whether it's our Twitter fan base, we often go on the idea of nostalgia, mm-hmm. okay? And I think that was a case. I was like, okay, I can remember being young, absolutely loving and finding coming to america absolutely hilarious because you know as a kid i was a huge eddie murphy fan his stand-up is his 80s stand-up is still some of the best stand-up i've ever seen like raw and delirious absolutely but i recently i mean when i say recently i mean in the last couple of years yeah what re-watched coming to america and i was like mm, okay i i like it it's not as good as trading places not as good as Ke- beverly hills cop and it's not as good as 48 Hours. I had a very similar experience because I only I was kind of late to the party with Coming to America. I seen Beverly Hills Cop as a kid. That would have been what kick-started my love of Eddie Murphy films, the attitude he had, how perfectly cast he was. He was so good in that film. And Trading Places as well, loved that film too. With Coming to America, I agree. I like it, but I don't think it's as funny as the other two. It is funnier than Coming to America, the belated sequel. Now, we, we, are, we differ there. I have still never seen Coming to America. No, don't bother. I know you have. Now, now this, this plays a pivotal part in this episode because the director of Coming to America is Craig Brewer, mm-hmm. who also directed this film, Dolomite Is My Name. Now, I have no skin in the game. I have never seen Coming to America. You have. Mm. Now, what's your run through of it? Okay, the, like the plot wires are just the kind of the general well, just idea. Your, just your general opinion. The general thoughts. Well, I'd watched Coming to America and I loved it. I thought right. it was absolutely hilarious. Great jokes in it. Not as funny as the other yeah, films yeah. we've yeah. mentioned. We've then established. Coming to America. Decades later, sequels are genuinely quite tricky, especially comedies, because it's hard to avoid that thing of, let's just kind of do the same yeah. thing, but years later and make some references to the earlier film. The biggest problems with Coming to America, first of all, it isn't very funny. Is it not? Not a lot of jokes land, especially where, look, if you just go back to a location where they were in the first film and make a joke that you make then, I'm not going to laugh at that. That's that's Control-V situation. See, I am so out of the loop, I couldn't tell you. Of course I know Eddie Murphy. If he's going to be the star. Is Arsenio Hall still in it? Arsenio Hall's still in it, yeah. How did... Okay. We've established you're not a big fan of it. I think you would toss it on the pile of... And I'm I'm assuming you'd burn this film, would you? I would burn this film. <laughs> it's the kind of film I'd would rather you burn not it? have seen, yeah. I mean, it's fundamental problems of the fact that, first of all, this is something I absolutely loathe about sequels, when they have to retcon the original in order for the new one to make sense. They retcon sense. the original? They basically retcon what? the original. They insert an incident which doesn't happen, and if oh, you no. consider the framework of the first story, if it did happen, it would invalidate the film. Also, there's one of those things. Have you ever seen someone in a film where there's a conflict very early on, and there is a very simple way to solve this to conflict? To address it. Exactly. Right. This happened in Coming to America. I thought, well, why doesn't he just do this? And I realised... Oh yeah, we're like twenty minutes in. Because if he did this, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be the rest of the film. Is there too much stupidity? There's a lot of stupidity. Now I'm going to ask you, right? You don't like the film. We've established that. I think the audience knows you hate the film, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. How is Eddie Murphy in? Is it? He's okay. It's that yeah. same problem with he has with Arsenio Hall, where it feels like they're going through the motions again. Right. Don't want to be ages, but it's that kind of looking old and tired, and oh, we're revisiting this thing now. And the it's fact it's like that, that. No, it's like no. that, and the fact that this guy directed the film as well. I mean, we all have an off day or an off film in this case, but coming to America, oh, no. just don't bother. It's no. not offensively bad. It's just, it's just redundant. It's irrelevant. Is it just? Meh. It's just there. Meh. It's the kind of film where you watch it and you think, oh, that's okay, but, well, at least we have the original. I'll just go back and watch that Well, one. that goes into a bigger discussion about Eddie Murphy. You know, we had this quite transgressive comedian in the 80s, like you said, Raw, Delirious. We had 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop. 
Motherfucking Norbit. <laughs> Norbit happened, Norbit. exactly. Norbit, uh, Daddy Daycare happened as well. I think Eddie Murphy fell into that trap of trying to have the kind of hook the kids, the family things, where every single poster was him screaming at something, that old face, which I hate so much. I think it's a trap comedians, especially they come from st- the stand-up world, they fall into quite easily, because this can be applicable to Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. Like, we have Robin Williams in... Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. He's terrific. Robin Williams could be a terrific actor. Greatest dad. Great yeah. film. And then he does, you know, not so great films. I know we both love, and it might be nostalgia at this point. I have no idea. We both love Jumanji, the yeah. original Jumanji with Robin Williams. Definitely, we both yeah. love that film. But Robin Williams fell in the same trap. Yeah, they go from being these great stand-up comedians, these quite these interesting, these transgressive minds, and then they fall into family fear. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work with Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy is a terrific actor. I mm-hmm. don't think any of us are disagreeing with that. And when he's in a family film, it's not necessarily that he's bad in the film. Mm-hmm. It's the material is bad. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see Eddie Murphy do Daddy Daycare. I think the big problem is they take this material, which is inherently bad, and in order to make it work... You've probably seen this in comedy films where the performers try to oversell it. They just try to oversell everything. They make try to make everything bigger, more elaborate, and it just comes across as annoying. Do you know what I'm blaming it on as well? Mm-hmm. And I'm putting some of the blame on this on Teddy Murphy. <laughs> that motherfucker has ten children. Yeah. He has to pay the bills. He's got to pay the bills, I suppose. He has to get these family audiences in. Because you you make a family film, you get the mother, the father, for example, you get the children in. They're not going to see Dolomite is my motherfucking name, (laughs) Wayne. There is an increased audience with uh, Dr. Doolittle. What do you think of Dr. Doolittle? I don't mind it. It's okay. I'm I'm not the biggest fan of it. I prefer, as like a Murphy kind of 90s comedy, I'm more of a Natty Professor fan. Can I put you on the spot again? Yeah. Jerry Lewis's version or Eddie Murphy's? Eddie Murphy's version, I think. Really? For the laughs, Eddie Murphy's version. Not like Jerry Lewis? I don't dislike Jerry Lewis, but I always found the Natty Professor, the newer one, better i mean that- he, he even ruined that by doing nutty professor 2 which yeah. was a very much very much a case of the first one was successful what do we do oh let's do it again yeah, but kind yeah. of bigger yeah I, I get you i get you and i think part of the reason part of the reason you don't like the jerry lewis one is because he was big in france that's that's such a stereotype <laughs> that the stereotype that he's big in france everybody yeah, watches jerry lewis jerry yeah. lewis was huge in france how did that become a thing i don't know was right. it i don't know what does that have to do with like french stereotypes the jerry lewis thing is it the slapstick thing maybe everyone just sits around eating baguettes drinking red wine wearing a beret and watching jerry lewis reruns for Apparently whatever reason that's a thing no but you're right about eddie murphy falling into this trap robin williams falling into this trap that's why I like so much the fact you have a movie like Dolomite Is My Name. When I reviewed this originally, I said, this is the kind of film Murphy should have been making all reviewed along. Reviewed it where? Reviewed like, it where? Uh, when I did, I did a best and worst of 2019 right, list, right, this right. was easily in the top 10. Okay. One of my favorite films right. of the year. This is what he should have been doing all along. He was made for this kind of thing. His brash personality, his in-your-face comedic style, perfectly gelled with Rudy Ray Moore. See, I think so. And as we said, look, this is Murphy's baby. This is, He brought this to fruition he brought this product he he approached scott alexander and larry karazowski now if um scott alexander and larry karazowski sound familiar to the audience that is because they were the writing team behind the people versus larry flint man on the moon and one of our collective favorites wayne Edward. Mm-hmm. Now, they specialize in outsider art they know how to bring the passion project to fruition this is their meat and bones. This is where they specialize. They've knocked out the park before. I love Man on the Moon. Mm-hmm. We both... Do you like Man on the Moon? I love Man on the Moon, yes. We both love Ed Wood. People versus Larry Flint is a terrific film also. And they brought it to Dolomite is my name. And Eddie Murphy knew this. He knew the way to bring an outsider into the mainstream. And he knew it was going to work. He knew it was going to work. Because Murphy, when he was discussing... Rudy Ray Moore's films. And this is not a parallel I drew. He likened his films, Rudy Ray Moore's, this is the original Dolomites, Human Tornado, Disco Godfather, you know, those kind of films. He likened them to Fellini and Jodorowsky. Now, I wouldn't automatically make that jump, but why did he make that jump? He made that jump, not necessarily in the style, but because 
They have an individual guerrilla spirit that inspires those who view them. And it definitely does. Because those two guys actually have their own term for it. It's antibiopics. I don't know if we've discussed this before. You're someone who's not especially high on biopics. Not necessarily. Look. As I said, Ed Wood, etc., but not in general, not in general. Because for me, a lot of the problem with biopics is they take too much creative liberty. Often they kind of soften, they kind of soften the the rough edges of their subject matter so they're far less interesting. But these guys make anti-biopics. That's not meaning they're criticizing biopics. It means they're taking people who are kind of obscure, the people on the kind of fringes of pop culture, making films about them, making films about more interesting people, not just your big superheroes. Yes. The grafters. See, this is what we love, Wade. We love the fucking outsider. Mm. And I think if people are a regular listener to this podcast, to our Twitter feed, etc., we love the outcast. Now, Karazowski and Alexander... Why them? Okay, they've dealt with Ed Wood, but we're we're in black culture now. Wait, it might not. You might not think this is a natural fit. So why them? Okay, here here's a quote from both these writers. They say, so we went to his office, Eddie Murphy's office, that is, and we walked in. He started doing scenes. This is Eddie Murphy from the movie we wrote. Ed Wood, Ed Wood, Eddie Murphy's a huge Ed Wood fan. He was doing Bella. He was doing Bella Lugosi. He was doing Tar Johnson. And he said to us, do you know Rudy Ray Moore and Karazowski and Alexander? They freaked out. And they freaked out because they were huge fans of Rudy Ray Moore. And I think that's the point, Wayne. When you are on the outside, whether it's a Rudy Ray Moore, whether it's an Ed Wood, whether it's any of these kind of filmmakers, you transgress racial lines. You transgress certain boundaries because you recognize talent you recognize that striving spirit you recognize the gorilla spirit i think the reason it works so well you say it's transcending all these boundaries because simply everybody loves an underdog because exactly. they're so they're so easy to empathize with because they have a long way to go they're aiming for something they're trying for something it's the triumph of the human spirit this is what you want to see you want to see stories about people like this who are trying to do something it doesn't necessarily mean the are going to do well they're not going to be great at it and the something i found is i don't know why this might just be me i love films that are about the creation of bad art you talk about ed wood the disaster artist talk about making the room florence foster jenkins where meryl street plays the singer who's dreadful but the husband tries to kind of cover it up films like that where you're earnestly making something which doesn't turn out well because someone said you take famously bad movies your plan nines your troll twos manus the hands of fates I've never seen that one. I, I, do you like Manus? No, no, it's just dull. Is it terrible? It's, is it just, terrible? it's just boring. Not right. for. I don't dislike it for the reasons most people do. I think it's just boring. It's just crap. Just it crap. is just crap. Pure crap. There's, there's nothing to... There's no Ed Wood factor where you're like, okay, this is so bad, it's fun. It's just motherfucking bad. <laughs> Keep account, people. That might have been forced, but I wanted to get another one in there. But the point is... Someone said it's very hard to make a bad film deliberately. In order for these movies to be enjoyable, these bad films, it has to be made with passion. Edward loved what he was doing. He just wasn't very good at it. You could make that kind of argument for Rudy Ray Moore with the film Dolomite that he makes, but he was such a passionate guy, and I think that's why he makes such a compelling subject matter. Now, you mentioned Motherfucker again, right? <laughs> okay. And so did you. <laughs> I, I can't keep account, Wayne. I hope somebody is keeping account. It's infectious. Okay, I have got a motherfucker face off for you <laughs> and i know this this would come up you can't think of a motherfucker without bringing this up okay mm-hmm. eddie murphy in this film who liberally uses the term motherfucker okay mm-hmm. it's it, it's a face off i'm putting it to you okay who says motherfucker the best is eddie murphy or samuel l jackson oh, man i was worried you would ask me that question well, you were, uh... honestly i think overall i think maybe it goes samuel l jackson really i think i like the way really? he says it more is it more is it more threatening yes i think it is more threatening yeah it's not yeah. necessarily used as funnily as eddie murphy uses yeah. it i've just always been more of a samuel l jackson motherfucker no. <laughs> But I know uh, Craig Brewer, the director of this film, this was posed to him. He said, okay, who's a famous motherfucker? Samuel (laughs) L. Jackson. Mm -hmm. So who says it best? Now, I imagine it is Craig Brewer stumping for his team. But he says, as much as I love Samuel L. Jackson's motherfuckers, I have to go for Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Now, I know he made the film with Eddie Murphy, and I assume he's batting for his own team. And it is a hard sell because i don't know who is the best because eddie murphy as dolomite as rudy ray moore one of his tags in this film is dolomite is my name 
fucking up motherfuckers <laughs> is my game. That is a great line. That is an iconic line. And when you realize how great of a line that is and how well Eddie Murphy delivers it, I don't know who says it better. It's a great line because, it, for me, it really encapsulates the whole persona because that's the idea with Dolomite. Dolomite is the pimp. He's kind of like Eddie Murphy in a way. He is brash. He is outrageous. He talks in this kind of rhyming slang when he's on stage. It's profanity-filled. It's dirty. It's rude. It's crude. The audience absolutely loves him for it. And just the way he uses the term, the way he throws it in over and over again, it very very much becomes part of his experience. It's like you can't separate Dolomite from the word motherfucker. They are one and the same. Well, the thing is, you can't separate Dolomite, the character, from Rudy Ray Moore. Mm-hmm. They become entangled. They become one in the same. And I think this is maybe where the hard sell came. Because we mentioned over 20 years ago, Eddie Murphy was trying to bring this into fruition. No studio would touch it. Absolutely none. They were like, who the fuck is Rudy Ray Moore? <laughs> and why are we interested in making a bio pick of the guy who made Dolomite but it took until Netflix. Netflix were the one who had the interest to make this a film and you know we often go on about physical media versus streaming but this is where streaming can come into its own where a studio might pass it up in the past that would be your only avenue if you didn't get picked up by a major or a a, a semi-major you were dropped but now we have streaming now we have the money going into that funnel and It is quite fruitious for Eddie Murphy that Netflix was on the go because this would have maybe never been made. It would have maybe never seen the light of day without Netflix and that would have been a damn shame. Possibly. And the fact that the film itself, Dolomite from 1975, that barely seen the light of day. And of course, this film is all about how it came about, how it was made, how it got released, etc. But we really have to talk about the actual Dolomite film just for a few minutes. I watched the Dolomite film as preparation for this podcast I'm going to be honest, not a fan. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> now, Eddie Murphy said there was obvious satire in the Dolomite film. What do you think? Do you think Rudy Ray Moore was being s- satirical? Or do you think he generally thought he was being Richard Roundtree in Shaft? Or he was being Jim Brown? Or he was being Fred Williamson? Do you think he really saw himself as the action hero? And it just didn't pan out? And it's just in retrospective, we're like... Oh, it's clearly satire. The way I seen it on the screen, I think he kind of was going seriously. I, I think so as I'm well. not sure he was trying to go too tongue-in-cheek. I think he felt that he was going to be like the next great big black exploitation action star, whatever. Didn't work out that way. I feel like Dolomite is my name. Kind of tricked me on the film because I thought I would like Dolomite way more than I did because of my experience watching Dolomite See, is my I, name. I seen all these films years ago and I'm trying to turn you on to the black exploitation genre. <laughs> and... I mean, it's not held in the highest regard, Dolomite, within the black exploitation fandom. But let, let, let's be honest here. It was made for roughly, roughly, I can't remember the exact numbers, quarter of a million? Something like that, yeah. Maybe even less. And it made over $10 million. It was a massive success. I mean, we're not questioning its popularity or anything. It's just the quality of the film. But I guess at the time, people had a real appetite for that thing because black exploitation was on the rise and you had this... This fast-talking character. This, I mean, Dolomite is a great character, I'll say that. But the film itself, and I never thought I'd say this, I thought it was actually just kind of boring. There were so many scenes that were just drawn out with not much happening. Characters just talking aimlessly with one another. Even some of the action sequences weren't very good. You can get a chuckle out of them, which is what Dolomite Is My Name does. But overall, just kind of dull. Well, are you saying Rudy Ray Moore in Dolomite doesn't reach the Kung Fu heights of Bruce Lee? Abs- absolutely <laughs> not, he does not. Really? Yes, absolutely. I- I'm surprised, and I'm shocked, and I am quite heartened by that, Wayne. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what Rudy Ray Moore thought he was going to do, what he was going to be able to pull off. I'm not saying he was immobile, but clearly he was very limited physically when it came to the fight sequences. In fact, there's the whole squad in that film of like kung fu ladies they basically do the fighting for him the kung fu hit women the kung fu hit women yes i mean i love that concept that was great that was great that was it almost predated kill bill i think so yeah i think the reason that was put in was maybe to cover up some of moore's you know more physical limitations that he couldn't do all the fight scenes himself well one of the things in this film which is highlighted in this film which is quite a theme of this film if we say eddie murphy playing rudy ray moore that character knows they're middle-aged now. They're in their 40s. Mm-hmm. He is kind of chubby. He's out of shape, let's say. 
So he knows he isn't your Richard Roundtree. He isn't your Fred Williamson. He isn't your ex-NFL football player. Now, what comes of that? Do you give up your dream because you're not the ideal? And this is where it becomes inspirational. And this is where I think the writers excel. It's like, okay, we know Rudy Ray Moore within this film is not your leading man. Mm. He's not your leading exploitation man even. But we believe in him. We follow him. We want him to succeed. And I think that is what this film is about. It is almost, in a sense, blind optimism because we are seeing this character and we identify with him. We are not all Fred Williamson. We are not all Jim Brown. We are not all the the kick-ass, take-names kind of guy. We are probably more Rudy Ray Moore than we are than the other guys. And because we identify this, we see him that much more as a real person. I think so. Also, because the films don't have the characters just locking up, the characters are good at something. Eddie Murphy is a good singer. Eddie Murphy is good at comedy. And he just kind of builds this character up. He's, like I say, he's middle-aged. He's not as spry as he once used to be. But he uses that. He works with that. That's why it's inspirational. He's good at something. The other people around are good at something because it's kind of a ragtag crew. You have some writers. You have Lady Reed, who's the leading lady. And you have the the technical guys like the the UCLA students. The UCLA. Now, I, now I have got a really <laughs> now I've got a really interesting anecdote about them UCLA students, which mm-hmm. I never knew, and it's not even brought up in this film. Right, there's a white guy, a white mm-hmm. kid, a 23 year old. He's the director of photography for the film Dolomite within this film. Okay, his name is Nicholas Joseph von Sternberg. He's playing this guy who's just out of UCLA or is still in UCLA. He is pretty much doing dolomite within this film for next to nothing but what it never states in this film and i have no idea why it doesn't they just refer to him as an ex-ucla student but in real life the dp of dolomite the character this guy is playing is the son of the famous director joseph von sternberg Hmm. and it never mentions it in this film (laughs) and i have no idea why that would have been more interesting maybe it was to give him a more fish out of water kind of element because the idea is they're brought in to do this film they're maybe kind of reluctant to do it they're not really getting paid to do it they have to very much improvise they have to steal electricity at one point so it's this ragtag group of people who are not necessarily got very much experience but they do have some kind of ambition to do what they want to do. And it's good you say steal e- electricity. And we mentioned earlier, you know, the John Casavetes who would mortgage his own house. And John Casavetes actually comes up in this film. I think it is Wesley Snipes' character who plays <laughs> who plays Dervil Martin. Now Dervil Martin is this kind of black exploitation staple. Mm-hmm. He also famously, famously within this film, Wade, <laughs> he was the elevator man in Rome Plansky's Rosemary's Baby. I think he possibly role. had a line. Possibly a line? One or two, maybe. He also played the character of uh, Frankie in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, a character who is actually so prominent that if you flick through Wikipedia, he's not even mentioned yeah. in the plot synopsis. But in Rosemary's Baby, he is literally, literally the only black guy to be in that film. And he has a line. And that's kind of within this film, Dolomite is my name, what carries him, he, which is... You know, he puts in his own self-worth. Look, I'm in a Polanski picture. This this is before Polanski fell out of favor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Back when you could praise a Polanski picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going back quite a bit. I yeah. think, yeah. Yeah, but it's the idea that he's been in this kind of, this Polanski film where he had a single line. And even when the characters approach him, because look, I love Eddie Murphy. He is fantastic in this film. The show is so close to being stolen by Wesley Snipes. Absolutely th- howl with laughter at everything Snipes does. I think we both agree on that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Him as D- Dervil Martin, you know, the quote-unquote uh, film director. Mm-hmm. I think we're being quite a bit generous there. Generous there, yes. Yeah, you know, I think there was kind of a compromise going but on I there. I think on second viewing, and even on first viewing, I recognised that, look, Wesley Snipes here. When they're in the scenes together, I wish he was in more, but he's not. But when they're in the scenes together... He's almost stealing the scenes from Eddie Murphy. When I knew I was going to be watching this film back, I think his parts were actually the bits I wanted to revisit the most. They were what I most look forward to watching again because he plays a kind of flamboyant actor, somewhat pretentious, somewhat up his own ass. He's got very odd mannerisms. He's very quirky. Like one little things he does that make you laugh that you wouldn't even think. Like he gets given the job of directing Dolomite just to get him into the film. Right. And when he calls action, he doesn't say action. He says action. Yeah. Just a funny little quirk like that, which I just 
pissed myself laughing at that. If we ever direct a film, we definitely have to say Action. I'm going to say Action. Accept no substitutes, motherfuckers. <laughs> but everything, his facial expressions, the way he moves, the way he acts, even the way he talks. Like at one point, he just says the word no, but he goes, no, and does this weird bulging eye thing. Who knew jail time for tax evasion would do a man so well? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember seeing Wesley Snipes and as I thought, oh, is he not still not serving time or is he out now? Because I think he came out of jail. Yeah, Did he not do a bunch of like direct-to-DVD cheapies to I pay off? He done bad films. Something yeah. like that. But he's so good in this. He's a director who is pretty much openly contemptuous of the film. Yep. He figures it's going to fail. He's drinking all of the time. He so doesn't care. There's the action scene with Dolomite fighting. We've talked about how Rudy Ray Moore doesn't look good as an action star. No, no, no. <laughs> He's trying to kick this guy, punch this guy, and Snipes stops. He says, is there any angle you can shoot to make it look like he's actually kicking him? There is no angle. And he goes, oh, action, and he just shoots again. So he's obviously contemptuous of this film. And it's not exaggerated. If you watch the original Dolomite, <laughs> would you say they're convincing? Would you say Rudy Ray Moore was a convincing kung fu artist? Not especially, no. I don't think so. You cannot shoot it from an angle which makes it look good. You could maybe smoke and mirrors it a bit more nowadays, but they didn't have the budget then, obviously. But I do have to say, I'm going to counter you a little bit, a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. I know this was your first time seeing Dolomite from 75, okay? Yeah. All right, I saw it years ago, and I did re-watch it for covering this podcast episode. And I've got to say, I didn't mind it. Not as much? I mean, it's been restored in a quite a good restoration for whatever company done it. Mm -hmm. It actually looked quite nice. I liked the aesthetic of the film. Now, I am not saying it is a good film. <laughs> I'm far from saying that. But it wasn't the slog I originally thought it was. So maybe Rudy Ray Moore was just ahead of his time. Maybe he was secretly a genius. Maybe you just need multiple viewings. Yeah, I mean, the film does have quite a few rough edges. But for me, it was just the, the scenes of dialogue, especially ones without jokes, just seemed to go on for a long time. I thought when I thought there's going to be more fights, there's going to be more, like there's more comic banter. I think one reason is in Dolomite Is My Name, we see some scenes being filmed when they're actually making the Dolomite film. Some of those aren't actually from Dolomite. Some are from like the human tornado. So they're films which came later on. Well, there is some condensing within this film because as in this film, when they're filming Dolomite, there is, and I've got two notable examples. There's the humorous sex scene. Where, <laughs> okay, there's a oh, sex God. scene between Rudy Ray Moore and this other woman and it's played for laughs. The, the pictures are on wires. They're moving up and down. The ceiling comes down. Okay, I <laughs> I, I, I watched when I watched this film back for this podcast. I was like, I can't remember that fucking fucking Dolomite, mm. motherfucking Dolomite. <laughs> but it actually, because we are condensed, it was actually in its sequel. Exactly, it's funny to watch the way the scene is put together because we spoke before about how making the best of what you got okay you're not as fit as you used to be you're not as attractive as you used to be and Dolomite takes this to his advantage and he's going to do a sex scene he doesn't feel sexy and he says it can be funny and that's exactly what he does taking that manipulating it to make it a funny scene obviously Derville Martin doesn't know this is going to happen because he sat there absolutely baffled about what's happening because the ceiling falls down these crackers go off and afterwards he says he says I don't know if it was sensual I don't know if it was sexy but it was funny as fuck <laughs> now can we discuss this yeah does Derville Martin actually direct anything I don't know he, he just kind of calls action and just sits there and kind of lets Wayne. the scene play out yeah Actione. he says action he doesn't call action to be fair the only reason he's in the film I think because he wanted a directing credit because yeah. that looks good on your resume that will help open more doors for you but I did like how he was kind of openly contemptuous of it and another thing I liked Derville Martin, when he acts in Dolomite, because he's a character yep. in it, he acts the same on camera as he does off camera. He's still quirky. He's still flamboyant. He's still weird. He's essentially playing himself. Well, is Derville Martin not the main bad guy in Dolomite? I think he is, yeah. He is. He's the guy who steals the club when Dolomite yeah, was in yeah, the clink. Yeah. So he comes out, tries to take it back from him. You can see Ray Moore putting kind of more of an effort into it than Martin was. And that's very much exemplified by the fact that once they're finished shooting the movie... Davil just walks off in disgust. He's had enough of this. He's walking off with like fake guts hanging off of him. He's like, yep, yeah, yep. I'm finished with this. He's like, this movie is going to be a failure. It's not going to be a success. Goodbye. And we never see him again. I did watch that scene. I was like, where did that happen in Dolomite? I can't remember uh, intestines being pulled out. No, neither can I. I, I, wonder, was, what, I wonder which uh, Rudy Ray Moore film that was from. They just want to kind of comically exaggerate what Now, happened. it would be a kind of a left field uh, if that was Disco Godfather. <laughs> it would have been yes but look I like in this film you know we're on about experimentation guerrilla filmmaking well in this film right we've got Dolomite he goes from this nightclub performer he's 
pretty much a jack of all trades. He's tried his hand in records. He's tried his hand as a as a stand-up comedian. But when he finally sees this homeless guy, now there's this homeless guy, and this is based on a true story. He sees who comes into the record store that Rudy Ray Moore works in. He's toothless. He's a homeless guy. He has these stories that he regales about, you know, these kind of crass stories, these funny stories about XYZ, pimps, prostitutes, etc., which Dolomite kind of picks up on. Now, when Dolomite takes this act, Rudy Ray Moore, and creates this character, Dolomite, Rudy Ray Moore never actually, and this is quite important, he never actually created within this community itself the Dolomite character. He made it professional. But this homeless guy that Rudy Ray Moore interacted with back in early 70s, maybe late 60s, this homeless guy, it was actually him who had the character of Dolomite. And interestingly, if you're wondering, like, where, where did he get this term Dolomite? Dolomite was actually a name for a specific vitamin. Hmm. Okay. Of all places, it was a vitamin. This is where this homeless guy got the name Dolomite. This is what Rudy Ray Moore picked up on when he was creating the character, this persona, so, so to speak. But when Rudy Ray Moore, Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore, first performs in this nightclub, now he's going from kind of an old stale act into this new persona, this new crass persona. When he first performs this on stage and he puts a... You know, he says a gag, a punchline. The drummer plays this old style, boom, mm. Okay, Dolomite says to him, don't play that buddy Hackett shit. <laughs> put some weight on it. Mm. And in this scene, he puts some weight into it, Wayne. This is the 70s. He puts a bit of swing into it, a bit of funk into the, the rhythm. Now, this is what's interesting. This scene wasn't pre-rehearsed. It wasn't pre-recorded. This was all spontaneous. Craig Robinson, who plays a singer in this film, the famous Craig Robinson, he came, comes onto stage. He plays the piano. And then this rhythm become, comes behind Dolomite, the character. And we have this funky, this, you know, this zeitgeist type of music playing behind them. All these characters, all these increments were put in spontaneously on the spur of the moment. And what we get is this spontaneous moment of reinvention, invention, so to speak. And I think it speaks volumes because Craig Brewer, the director of this film, says there's a moment in this film and it's on camera where Eddie Murphy as, as Dolomite turns to Craig Robinson on the piano and there's like this, you know, this nod of approval. And that was because he genuinely thought, look, we're in sync, we're on the same wavelength, this is motherfucking working. He, it was the moment he knew that this was going to work well. And yep. I think we see his transition from the comic he was before to the one he is now because the comic he was before, he was essentially an opening act for a singer. Yep. He was the person no one really wants to see. This is the time where you're just going to go to your bar, you're going to go to the toilet, you're going to have a drink, whatever, waiting for the act to come on. He's the warm-up act to kill time before the main event happens. And it doesn't work. And like you say, he's very much a punchline, dudum kind of comic. But when he creates the Dolomite character, he's telling the audience a story he's bringing them on it's like a story that's littered with jokes it's not just punchline 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 yep, yep. and that's what works it brings the audience kind of along on him like it's taking him on a road trip right. just with all these funny things interspersed and what i like is they take they go to like the deep south for example in mississippi one point and he's making jokes at the expense of mississippi and they're loving it you think they'd be furious but because of how likable he is how funny he is the crowd totally goes along with it People like that. They like the injection of satire. Nobody mm. wants to be serious. Look, this is a nightclub. Alcoholic drinks are being served. This is the 70s where you could still smoke at a fucking nightclub. <laughs> People like that. They like to loosen the tie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They like to let go. This is a safe space in a sense. Look, we are here. We have, you know, the babysitters looking after the kids. Let's enjoy ourselves. And Dolomite fits that role to a T. And he translates that perfectly into the films that he's doing because it's it's kind of a similar thing. He's still the brash guy. He's still the outrageous guy. We see in the Dolomite film with him interspersing in his routine. Dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my how game. many how many is that how many is that that was two. I have <laughs> no idea. I have no idea. So the way he integrates that into the film and because. Moore is portrayed as a talented guy. Like I say, he can sing, he can do comedy. 
it's all about him developing that persona. He doesn't just lock into being good at singing or into being good at stand-up comedy. We see him genuinely working on his routine and making friends, making connections, doing deals with record companies. And we see him incrementally becoming more and more successful. But he's still ambitious. That's what leads to him doing the movie because he watches a film and he says it's just so serious. It's not is funny. Is it the front page? It is, with, uh, yeah, with Jack Lemmon. He's like... Walter Matthau. Yeah, yeah, Walter Matthau. He's like, this isn't funny. Why is this... This is not funny at all. He wants to make his own film. And that's the kind of power of... The power of one. The power of someone thinking, I want to do this. Getting your group together. And actually just going out and really making a difference. Well, what's interesting, you say, he's creating this character. He is not Dolomite. Rudy Ray Moore was not Dolomite. He was insecure. He was down on his ass in his 40s, middle-aged. The Dolomite character is purely a creation. And I think this is best exemplified, best juxtaposed by his meeting of this woman. This woman in Dolomite, her real name, of course, was Lady Reed. Yeah. In this film, she's referred to as Queen Bee. And I think that's a nice juxtaposition because it allows Rudy Ray Moore to be insecure Mm -hmm. because this is a platonic relationship. And I think that's why Queen Bee and Rudy Ray Moore's relationship is so strong in this film because it's, I would say it's the strongest relationship within this film. It's the strongest dynamic between two characters and it is platonic. It's not a sexual relationship, so it's not fleeting. There is no give or take. It's purely platonic. I love that. I, I love that approach. And what it allows is, is... We see this guy, this Dolomite on stage, he is cocky, he is confident, he is crass, he is crude, X, Y, Z. But when he is home alone, he is filled with self-doubt. When he is home home alone, he doesn't know if he's going to succeed. He doesn't know if this is going to work. It's purely a persona. Even when he makes Queen Bee tug on his wig, it's all a facade. And what this character of Queen Bee allows the audience to see is the vulnerability of Rudy Ray Moore, because when he's home alone, he phones her. He's the one who who relay his insecurities to her. And there is nothing to give, there is nothing to take. It's just purely a beautiful relationship between the two of them. And that's what makes his character so good in that he's not a world beater because we see him struggle, we see him fail, but it's his get up, just get up and go attitude. Yep. Lady Reed is the same thing because she's a very talented singer. And even when he approaches her, she's very hesitant because she's like, I just broke up with my ex. He is, she just assumes he's coming on to her. But he brings her into this film and she has roles in front of the camera and behind the camera. Yep. And she even says later on, a very poignant moment, she says to Dolly, my, I want to thank you because I've never seen people like me on that stage because because she's a black woman and she's quite overweight she's as well. She's heavy set, yeah. Yeah, and she's like, I've never seen anyone like that on stage. And he, he didn't judge her for that. He's seen her as a person. He's seen her for the talented person she was and put her in the film. And like I say, they relay these stories back and forth, very vulnerable, very much like just two people really pouring their hearts out to one another. Which is, I think plays into what we were saying earlier, you know, when we were saying about black exploitation, how there's detractors who said it portrays, you know, the the negative elements of black culture, let's say. But in a way, it's like we're talking about Rudy Ray Moore, we're on about Queen Bee. Okay, Queen Bee is not a traditionally looking leading lady. No. Okay. Hollywood's version of somebody being quote-unquote unleading ladylike is a Barbra Streisand. She's pretty, but she's got a slightly big nose. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where, you know, exploitation, the word of genre comes in. We are seeing these varieties where traditional Hollywood would not necessarily veer. And, you know, that is changing over time, of course, mm-hmm. but it takes the avant-garde to change that. Without a Rudy Ray Moore and a Queen Bee, you don't know if you, like, for example, this is just a random name, a Queen Latifah, mm-hmm. somebody who's not traditionally what you would say, quote-unquote, is a good-looking person. But their worth is still there. They still can bring something to the table. They can still make an important character. And you say about the critics decrying this for being stereotypical, oh, it's pimps and it's drugs and it's prostitutes and it's ghettos. Okay, are you saying those places don't exist? Are you saying there are not stories to be told there? When we talked about the movie Safe, we talked about how there's so many fascinating stories. And the ice storm, there's so many fascinating stories in the suburbs, these quiet, gentle suburbs where you wouldn't expect to find it. And of course, the Dolomite film that they actually make ends up being panned by critics which I felt was kind of a commentary on people talking about critics being 
out of step with the normal person, being out of touch with the general audiences. Well, what is important about when Dolomite in this film finally premieres, and I think this is where it comes full circle, and I think this is kind of the pulls at your heartstrings, and this is where you see the worth of a Rudy Ray Moore. They finally get their premiere of Dolomite. It's got a big premiere, everybody's there, but importantly, importantly, while the casts go in there, we have Lady Reed who is saying, you know, I never thought I'd be in this position, I'm an overweight woman, I'm a black woman who is marginalised in this time and this period of American culture. But they all go there. Now, all the cast, the crew, they all go to the premiere. It is a full house. And not only is it a full house, we have a plethora, the, a horde of fans who couldn't get tickets, who are waiting outside that venue where that film is premiered. And I think this is the heart of the film. And I think this is, speaks to everybody. Okay, Rudy Ray Moore, he's put his life into this film, Dolomite. He's put his soul into this film, Dolomite. He's literally hired an old venue <laughs> and got into debt and paying off all these XYZ producers just to make this film. But when his film finally premieres, when it gets its big break, and when those audiences are filling those stages and those seats, and all those people couldn't get in because the buzz is so strong, Rudy Ray Moore doesn't take his seat. He doesn't stop. He doesn't think, fuck this, this is my time, I'm going to watch my film in front of an audience. He's like, no, I've got an audience to entertain. These people want to see Rudy Ray Moore. They want to see Dolomite. The crowd in that cinema, they're going to see the film. This is my purpose. I'm going to entertain the fans who came to see me. They can't get in, but I'm still going to do that. And he does. He misses his own premiere. Mm -hmm. He stays with his fans. The people he knows are fans of his. And that's important. That speaks to the outsider. Because this goes beyond just me 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 narcissism of i want to sit there i want the adulation i want the the clapping and the fandom he's like no these are my fans they came to see me i'm going to entertain them even if they couldn't get in the cinema he's been vindicated because the film has come out and it's been a success because they read the reviews on the way to the cinema everyone's making fun of him how bad a film it is etc etc but then they see the huge audience that's vindication for them because all of the hard work who cares what the critics say people have come to see it the common man has come to see it and you say about he Dolomite goes out talks to his fans he does some of his rhyming slang with a kid who does the same kind of yep. routine backwards Dolomite has not forgotten where he came from he's still Rudy Ray Moore he's still an ordinary guy and these fans they were him and what's important with that young fan you mentioned who recites Dolomite's lines is okay the mainstream the critics the mainstream critics they want to push you to a side say this is silly this is ridiculous but he's touched an audience member mm -hmm. he knows he's made an impact and that means more to whoever at the New York Times. I think any film director will tell you, you know, you can have all the kind of glowing reviews, but I think what they'd like more than anything else is to someone to come up to them and say, your movie really moved me. I loved your film. It, it holds a special place in my heart. I think that's worth more than 100 glowing critical reviews. We've previously mentioned in this episode, Wayne, Man on the Moon. Yes. Ed Wood. I think we're both in agreement that they are special films. Yes. We love much. Ed Wood. Would you agree? Yeah, I love both of those films. Edward more than Man on the Moon. You think I so? Yeah. I think I enjoy that I like film both. more overall. I mean, like, I mean, it's great watching uh, Andy Kaufman, seeing the story behind yeah. him. Jim Carrey was fantastic in it. I loved how this idea that the whole film could just have been a prank because that would have been very Andy Kaufman. But look, we we are a small podcast, Wayne. Yeah, we are building up from the ground up. We are hustling to make an audience, <laughs> and I think that matters. In two thousand and two, a handful of years before Rudy Ray Moore's death. At the age of 75, Rudy Ray Moore stated, I hope that someday they make a movie about me. People need to know the story of Dolomite. They need to know my story. And that they have. And not only do they know his story, as the credits proudly state, Rudy continued fucking up motherfuckers until the day he died. I don't know the count there for motherfuckers, Wayne, but this is episode 56, and you've been listening to In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream.